bow our heads for prayer. Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that we would recognize all that you have given to us through Christ and his resurrection. In his name we pray, amen, amen. It's a deep joy to be here with you again. I'm well aware that this is my last time with you as Bishop of the Diocese. And I'm so grateful as I look back for your ministries of planting and discipling, of supporting mission here and around the world. God has done great things here through you all. I'm grateful for Mike and for the other clergy and their families, for all your leaders who serve all of you. I'm very grateful for Alex Farmer, my successor, and his wife Jody, and the ties that he already has to this congregation and to many congregations in the diocese. So grateful for the fact that the Lord has made a path for uh, Alex to be our next bishop. I need to say... I felt the similar things about the other candidate. But it's all the Lord's work. So in a sense, this is my last sermon, and that's part of why I changed the readings. Because I thought back to what, in a sense, was my first sermon. I did give a witness at my prep school chaplain uh, shortly after I became a Christian, a little word there, but that was really not a sermon. But when I got to college... I was taken under the wing of a seminarian in the school next to my university, a guy named John Yates, who had I, whom I had already met, and he invited me to work with him in youth ministry. I had been a Christian at that point about seven months. And he challenged me pretty quickly to prepare a talk or a sermon, if you will, to give to the youth group. I was terrified. He said the topic should be the case for the resurrection. And then he gave me a whole bunch of books to read to make the case that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead and therefore is the living Lord. Well, I wrote it out. I remember being terrified to give it. I'm not sure if it helped anyone, although John Yates was encouraging. But I have to tell you one thing, it helped me. So if this is my last sermon, and actually next Sunday will be my last time in any visitation, next Sunday will be my last time in any visitation as the diocesan bishop, it seems appropriate for this to be the topic, to go back to the beginning. Now, I cannot make a full case for the historical validity of the resurrection in one sermon this morning. I'll just give one pointer to the historical fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. Remember, historical fact is different than scientific fact. You can't go back and repeat history. There, you use different ways to uh, prove the case of a historical event. But I want to look at one part of the historical case and then a few consequences of the resurrection of Jesus 
for our lives as his followers, as his disciples. So the case and the consequences. The case. When Jesus died, not one of his followers was expecting the resurrection. Despite his predictions, and he, he had made several predictions, they just didn't get it. You know, in pre-COVID days, I was always amazed when Apple came out with a new phone and people lined up for hours, sometimes overnight, to be in line to be able to go into the store and get the first one. They were anticipating this great new phone. Active levels of, of expectation and anticipation. But the disciples had zero level of anticipation of the resurrection. I mean, look, if you believed that Jesus was going to be powerfully raised from the dead, wouldn't you, spent, wouldn't you have spent a couple of nights near the tomb so that you'd be there? You wouldn't want to miss that. But they weren't there. And then they unexpectedly saw him after he was raised. And they became those who died proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus. There were hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection. But the pointer I want to look at this morning is just the case of Peter. Because the change that took place in Peter is perhaps the most dramatic. An angel tells three women at the tomb this incredible news that Jesus has been raised. Turn to Mark 16 just for a moment. I want you to hear the angel's commission to the women. Obviously, he's speaking on behalf of Jesus. Mark 16, 6. The angel said to them, do not be alarmed. People were generally alarmed when they saw an angel. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Now there are two words in that account that do not appear in any of the other Gospels. Two simple words, but very important. Two words that are missing, if you will. What were the two additional words? And Peter. And Peter. Now, we know that Mark's gospel, it was a result of Peter's preaching. So you get a sense that we're getting a little bit of Peter's firsthand experience, and he would have heard this message. And Peter. Now, why does the Lord Jesus say that through an angel? Because at this point, Peter would no longer have considered himself a disciple. You need to understand that in Jewish culture, the worst thing a disciple could do would be to betray and to deny his master. And Peter had done it three times a couple of nights before in a matter of minutes. Peter would have counted himself out. Maybe one of you here is, has counted yourself out as a follower of Jesus. You have just failed at some level that you think you could never actually be accepted by Jesus again. Peter was a traitor. He denied Jesus 
to save his own skin. But there are two things about the change in Peter. Yes, first of all, he did meet with Jesus several times. There was apparently one uh, personal uh, resurrection appearance to Peter that um, Paul references later. But just seeing Jesus, just being with the risen Jesus, wasn't enough to fix things. Jesus had to assure Peter that he was restored to ministry. So we see in John's gospel that Jesus gives Peter three opportunities to recommit himself to serving Jesus. You remember the scene. It, the pattern is Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus then says, feed my sheep. Three times in slightly different forms. What's going on there? Je Jesus is changing Peter from somebody who's allowed himself to see himself as just a traitor to become a shepherd. In fact, I believe that part of the reason that it, this process had to go the way it did is Peter was so proud of the fact that he thought he was the best apostle that no matter what the others were going to do, he would never deny Jesus. And Jesus had to turn him from that pride through this painful experience. There's a statue commemorating the moment of <clears throat> Peter being restored by Jesus by the Sea of Galilee. It's a radically visual image of the emotional and spiritual reality of what's going on. Peter is kneeling before Jesus. Jesus is blessing Peter, his hand outstretched over Peter, and then there's a shepherd's crook or staff being placed into Peter's hand. What a powerful image. Peter is changed by the risen Christ into the one who courageously preaches to thousands just a few weeks later. He's just one changed life. But when you add them together, you have massive evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I need to tell you that when I have doubts, and I do, we all do, I don't think back to my encounter with the Lord at the beginning, as real as that was. Because I can always find a way to question it. Instead, I work back to considering the case for the resurrection of Jesus. And I find all the other possible explanations insufficient. The facts are that Jesus was so real and so present that the disciples' lives were changed forever. So first of all, do you know the case for the resurrection? Could you repeat it? There are many good books about it out there. One I, in the midst of finishing, is by Tim Keller called Hope in Times of Fear. Perhaps some of you know it. The subtitle is The Resurrection and the Meaning of Easter. Hope in Times of Fear, The Resurrection and the Meaning of Easter by Timothy Keller. I strongly recommend it or books like it. It's a book for our moment in history where everything seems to be falling apart. We need that book. So John Yates had challenged me to study the case and I challenge you to do the same. But let me having considered the case for the resurrection just momentarily, let me close with three consequences of believing in the risen Jesus. 
And I want you to listen for the one that speaks most powerfully for you. I don't know about you, but I can't remember three things very long. If, I, if I'm going shopping and there's more than two things, I write them down. So be listening for which one applies to you today and ask the Holy Spirit to show it to you. But three consequences, hope, humility, and hearness. I'll say a word about the last one in a minute. Hope, humility, and hearness. We are able, because Jesus has been raised, to be radically hopeful. Peter was changed from a hopeless fail failure to the proclaimer of hope. I want you to listen to these words. We just heard them from his letter, first letter, first chapter, third verse. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. And Peter understood mercy now. He has caused us, not just you, us. Peter sees himself in the us. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's in the resurrection that we see the mercy of God who died, uh, of Jesus who died for us by the mercy of God. Note the language. By God's mercy, Peter, as well as the rest of us, was born again. His life began again. There was a reset button in his life because of experiencing the resurrected Jesus and being reconciled to him. And we're to be holding on to the same living hope of having eternal life, life that is something we will inherit in greater fullness when we die, a life that death cannot destroy. Do you really believe that? Do you really have that hope in your core? People can live their whole lives in fear of death. Do you? But we have nothing to fear because Jesus, through the resurrection, has shown us that death is not the end of things. I'm going to read to you from Hebrews 2 using the message uh, translation, which is kind of a commentary as well. But I like the way Eugene Peterson worded it. He said, since the children are made of flesh and blood, it's logical that the Savior took on flesh and blood in order to rescue them by his death. By embracing death, taking it into himself, he destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life. Scared to death of death. I think a lot of the times the world is scared to death of death. Sometimes we as Christians are too. But we don't need to be scared to death of death. We have a hope. We can be marching ahead. Heaven is more real than life here. C.S. Lewis calls life here the shadowlands in comparison to the reality of heaven. Resurrection gives us a radical hope of life forever because Jesus has defeated death because Jesus is risen. We have the hope of a kingdom that's already coming, the hope of the return of Jesus ahead and of heaven, our long-awaited home. Hopeful for the future no matter what happens. In the same passage, Peter says, in this you rejoice, in this hope, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. In the midst of a mess, we have hope, deep hope. Second consequence, humility. Jesus is risen not just to be our personal Lord, but to reign over history and to bring perfect judgment at the end of history. 
And this should lead us both to greater trust in him and also greater humility. Now, here's the reality. We look around, we watch the news, various other things. If we are honest with ourselves, we really don't know what's going on. We really don't know how things are going to play out. Yesterday's villain is today's hero and vice versa so often. But in the midst of having our own opinions, we're divided. There's an interesting, interesting set of articles in one newspaper recently. All the columnists wrote a column that began, the title of the column began with these words, I was wrong about. And then they picked something that they had said in the past and realized they were wrong. I appreciated one column by David Brooks. I don't know if you know him. He describes himself as a wandering Jew and a confused Christian. Jewish background who came to Christ and is still sorting all that out. But he began his column with this confession. He said, I have a specific way. I tend to be wrong. I fall behind. Every day the world turns and every day I try to adjust my belief system to the realities of the moment. He's talking about economic views that he has changed over time. You would think I'd be able to recognize the emerging challenges and shifting tectonics fairly quickly. As a newspaper columnist, I'm paid for one skill above others, careful observation. But sometimes I'm just slow. I suffer an intellectual lag. I love his humility. We can be so certain that we understand the history happening around us that our side is the right side and the other side is the enemy, but that's not how Jesus sees things. Do you realize that Jesus chose disciples with opposing backgrounds? Just one example. He chose Matthew, the tax collector, who collaborated with the Romans. And then he chose Simon, not Simon Peter. There was another Simon called the Zealot. What does that mean? It means that he was part of the group of violent revolutionaries whose job was to be terrorists and kill Romans and Roman collaborators. I can't imagine what it would have been like for Matthew and Simon to begin to compare notes as they came into the company of Jesus. Don't you wonder how they got along at least initially? But the answer is, eventually they had more in common with each other as brothers in Christ and as followers of Jesus, who is the true king and ruler of history. Humility. Now, some things don't change. The gospel is eternal. It never changes. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The scriptures never change. And scriptural principles never change. Greed is never good. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Falsehood and hatred and murder are not options for followers of Jesus. Some things never change. But we would be better disciples if we held many of our views, many of our opinions, particularly about people we disagree with politically, a little more loosely. And if we spent more time asking the Lord and reading his word to get perspective on life rather than the time we spend listening to media. Can we submit our opinions to Jesus so that we can love one another more? If Jesus is the risen Lord, 
he calls us, because he rules history, to humility about our place in it. And finally, the hearness of Jesus. Yes, actually, I thought I was making up word, but it's a word. Unsurprisingly, the dictionaries define it as a state of being here. We often talk about the nearness of Jesus, but he's not only near, he is here, as Mike said at the beginning of the service. Jesus in Matthew 28 says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. As I was driving up to Charleston on Friday to uh, the consecration of a new bishop up there, I reviewed my life and I looked at key moments and key decisions and key people and so many good things orchestrated that I could not have controlled. They were all because Jesus is here. And so many hard times that I made it through because Jesus is here. Jesus was there at every turn. I didn't understand it at the time. Jesus describes hearness this way. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you and me and I in you. Hearness. I'm there. I'm in you. Just went to a birthday party for one of my grandchildren. And as the kids were sitting around, there were six of them, sitting around the table. Uh, it's my daughter Katie and her husband Wes. And it's a Brady Bunch. We'll talk about that later. Um, But what they do every night at dinner is they turn to each kid and they say, tell us today about a joy, about junk, and about Jesus. What was the joy, the greatest joy in your day? What was the junk in your day? And where was Jesus in your day? And the answer always is that no matter what the joy and the junk are, Jesus is there right there, working in the midst of the joy and the junk. So those who are being received or confirmed today, and it's true for all of us, you're committing yourselves afresh to the risen Jesus, the right here with us now, Jesus. The Jesus who is constantly showing mercy, who is ruling over history, your history and all of history, every moment, The Jesus who gives us hope. But not only that, he is our hope. Being with him is our destination. He's always here, no matter what. So my last words to you and what may be my last sermon to you, never forget that Jesus is risen indeed. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord Jesus, we recognize that none of us would be here if you had not drawn us, if your Father had not brought us to you. We didn't get here by ourselves. And as we look back, we can see that you were present even when we didn't recognize it. We can understand that you're alive every moment of our life, that our hope is in you, Humble us when we think we are more in charge than we are, that we are more aware than we are. Help us instead to find our resting place in you and greater love for each other. 
We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are always here. In your name we pray. Amen.